Welcome to episode 73 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Jenny Pawlowski. She served in the Army and deployed to Iraq in 2004. She talks about the hard parts of military life. She was a combat medic when women were not supposed to be in combat, and sometimes this led to her not even being recognized with the awards that she should have received for being in combat. The whole experience of her deployment and her time in the military was really difficult and she talks about the realities of about what sometimes happens when you join the military and the promises that were made are not honored and how hard it is to deal with that especially in a war zone. One of the hardest parts to hear of her story was when she talked about coming home for her mid-tour from deployment and saying goodbye to people. They didn't know she was saying goodbye but she was saying goodbye to them because she truly thought she wasn't going to survive the rest of her deployment to Iraq. Jenny has left the military and today is the founder and director of the Women Veterans Empowered and Thriving. It's a reintegration program that utilizes writing and performing to empower veterans to thrive in their daily life. She collaborates with multiple organizations including colleges, university, middle schools, and theaters across the country. It's inspiring to see the work that she's doing and to hear the realities of her story. So it's another great episode, so let's get started. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to hear part of your military experience today. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Let's talk about why did you decide to join the military? So I joined the military in 2003. I had about $40,000 in student loans because I had gone to college first. I was 23 when I joined. Uh, I had a series of events that happened um, before I joined. Uh, I totaled my car and uh, I had a fire in the house I was renting. Those combination of events kind of led up to what I like to call the economic draft, that I could not quite make it work in the civilian world. So I uh, joined the military. I, uh, I gave up my GI Bill to have the student loan repayment, and my dream was to be in the military for life. So you were able to, instead of having the GI Bill after you got out, it covered your student loans that you had currently? That was the, the, the promise, yes. That promise was not actually followed through, but um, yes, that was the initial promise. Okay. So that's what they told you when you were joined? Yes. <laughs> that's a better way to put it. That's what they told you when you signed the dotted line. It was in the contract and everything. I mean, I thought I'd cover my basis. Right. So you were in the Army. What was your job when you were in? When I joined, uh, it was healthcare specialist, backslash, combat medic. So we had been trained in both um, at Fort Sam Houston. And then you weren't in for very long before you deployed to Iraq. So did you go to boot camp in your training? And then how much time before you left to deploy? I got to Germany 
Um, my first duty station, I was there for about a month and a half, and then I went right to Iraq in 2004. So I joined April 23rd, 2003, and then by January 2004, I was in Iraq. Wow. That's so fast. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so trial by fire. Our ambulances were still green. We didn't have any armor, and we pretty much went right into medical support for convoys. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about convoys in Iraq in 2004. You already mentioned a little bit about the vehicles. So talk a little bit about what it was like to be on a convoy, pretty much in a Humvee, right? So we had FLA ambulances, which essentially were a Humvee with a big box on the back that held four litter spots. So stretchers, four stretchers. The convoys, uh, we supported everyone from the Air Force to the Marines to the Army getting attached to different units. I was all over the Sunni Triangle. The longest time I was at Al-Assad, which is a Marine Corps base, so we did a lot of convoys with the Marines. The convoys entailed uh, improvised explosive devices, small arms fires, RPGs, all of the weapons of war that I was exposed to. And I think it's really interesting. So you were, did you deploy with a unit or were you like a piecemeal? Like they took your job title and they were like, we need you in Iraq, so go. Or how did that work? We actually were a medical evacuation unit. 557 Medical Company, medical evacuation unit. Uh, So it was was kind of, I have a a little bit of a different experience than I hear from most women veterans. I was deployed with uh, 100 medics. So it was divided pretty evenly, 50-50 men and women. But then on the convoys, obviously, were mostly men. And so your guys' support was to be combat medics. It's pretty self-explanatory, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think so. People usually get it when you're like, I was a combat medic on the front lines in Iraq. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you guys bounced around and kind of whatever the needs were for the units that were going out and running convoys, you guys like your higher headquarters put everybody where they needed to be. Is that kind of how it worked? So it was, we were deployed, you know, a hundred medics, four platoons and the platoons originally got tasked out to different forward operating bases, different bases like that. But then eventually towards the end of 2004, we all ended up in, uh, uh, into crit, I believe. And we were running mostly night convoys with the army. So that was probably the most challenging part of my deployment I guess I'll just do a shout out to the Marines. The Marines really scared the insurgents. So they didn't really mess with our convoys when I was running convoys with the Marines. Uh, But when I did night convoys with the Army is when a lot of the exposure stuff happened, the IEDs with the the attacks. So you attribute it to the fact that they were scared of the Marine Corps? Because when I was in Afghanistan, we were with the French and they would attack the French, but they didn't want to attack us because... The French were an easier target, I think. Yeah, I think I think uh, the the myths, and also, I guess since I gave a shout out, I can give a shout back of uh, you know the the insurgents knew that the Marines would would really go after them and and not necessarily uh, follow the rules of war. Yeah, they were definitely scared of them. That makes sense, and that shows like the Iraqis and all enemies of war. They know they're fighting against and they know like they study us just as much as we try and like learn and study about them so yeah to piggyback off of that they figured out what the ambulances were so they started specifically targeting the ambulances towards the end of 2004 
So we had to like close our, our crosses and, and try to blend it as best we could. And we finally got up armored about six months in. They were definitely studying us um, and who to kill to kill morale. Because if you kill the medics, you know, the people lose hope. So you kind of had a target on your back while you guys were running convoys. That's a little scary. Just a little. <laughs> Actually, honestly, in the moment, in the in in it, didn't even occur to me. I was getting all this information about like why we were closing things and and what to watch out for, but I was still doing the same job, and uh, that's what I was focused on. So it wasn't until after I got home that I started to have to process all of the information that I received. <laughs> On the convoys. Yeah, because when you're deployed, you're just like go and you're and you're like kind of in survival mode to just get through the deployment. So your body and your mind only takes in like key pieces that you need. Yeah, it's like okay, we're doing this. Okay, I'll do it. You don't really ask questions or even really think about it because you're just trying to get through and survive. So that makes a lot of sense. Were there any like particular convoys that stood out or like really close calls that you remember that have stuck with you or does it all blur into like everything? That's a good question. For the most part, they all blur together. It's just like sometimes I say Iraq was uh, like one long convoy the whole year. It's all the same stuff over and over and over again. One of the one of the close calls that really, really affected me was kind of like anticlimactic in the story, but in my body and my mind, it just kind of resonates with me. We were doing a convoy at night and my TC was actually our captain of our company. And we got hit with an IED and some small arms fire. And uh, we were, you know, the convoy commander was like, go, 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 you know, just keep going, try to try to push through all the, the ambush and whatnot. So we end up on the top of the Samara Bridge and the, the thing that happened at Smart Bridge every, like every other week, I swear, was the insurgents that blowed up. So here we are at night with all of our lights on, <laughs> on the bridge. And I was like, well, if we got to the bridge, couldn't we have gotten just a little bit further, like over the bridge? <laughs> and I was really angry at the time because I had gotten the letter from the military saying they weren't going to pay my loans back uh, while I was still in Iraq. So I was questioning a lot of the reasons of why I was there and what I was doing. And if they weren't upholding their contract, why was I upholding mine? So I had like a lot of stuff going on inside of me. So I'm sitting on this bridge thinking we're going to die. And then, you know, we all line up and we got our our M16s pointed out into the darkness. Like, I don't know what we're going to shoot at outside the bridge, but whatever. And they were fixing the truck and no one had gotten hurt. I was with everyone else, you know, because... Even though you're a medic, you still have a, I had an M16 because I was on convoys. I didn't have a nine mil like, uh, like officers and stuff did. So we're, we're guarding the bridge and, uh, you know, people started hearing somebody's under the bridge, you know, how they all the whispering happens, you know? And I was like, oh man, this is going to be bad. <laughs> somebody's, somebody's going to start shooting and it's going to get really bad really quick. Then all of a sudden over the, over the radio, we hear, uh, you know, don't shoot, don't shoot. It's third ID. So it was our guys underneath the bridge. So I came to a really close call of getting that, that, uh, that friendly fire experience. And, uh, it just really added to the anger that I had, like with the lack of communication and, and how just things happen really easily. And that I was really lucky that, that we didn't kill our guys and I didn't have to try to save them after we shot them. But that one always sticks with me for some reason. It was kind of that moment of like, what am I doing here? <laughs> What's happening right now? 
that kind of like out of survival mode and into like a little bit more of thinking about what's going on. Yeah, that is crazy. And the fact that you were dealing with the personal issue on top of that. And I think we should talk a little bit more about that, about the army not honoring their agreement and what happened and how that affected the rest of the deployment. So how long had you been in Iraq when you were on that bridge and had that news? I got that news at the seventh month point, and that was about the ninth month. And okay. returned at the 11 and a half month. <laughs> These kind of things just stick with me. Usually, mm-hmm. like, I can't tell you what I did yesterday, but I can tell you exactly when I got that letter and where I was when I was feeling certain things during that, uh, that realization of what was happening to me. Yeah, that makes sense. That I think it's really bad that the military obviously didn't honor their agreement, but to be in a war zone, especially dealing with like the things that happen at war and just the whole overall experience makes it that much harder. And you were kind of stuck because you couldn't go home even if you wanted to. Like you're like, I don't want to hold up my end of the agreement. And it's like the military doesn't care that you're there. Well, I got the um I got the letter when I was home on R and R for two months. Oh. Okay. In the middle of my deployment, because they let the the lower enlisted go on R and R. So I definitely had that moment, not the proudest moment, but of like, I don't think I should go back because I'm gonna die. You know, it was when I when I came home on leave, I was like, it's not if I'm gonna die, it's when I'm gonna die over there. Cause it was just we were just doing so many convoys and it was just it was 2004. <laughs> like, it was bad. So I had that talk with myself and I talked to my parents. You know, I, uh, I couldn't stomach the idea of not going back and one of my friends dying in my convoy, like putting them in more danger just to stay home and like fight this legal thing. Or, or like I had a higher calling to the people I was deployed with than to the military or the army. Right. Uh, I wanted to make sure that they were going to be okay and we were going to get through it together. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I think that's the truth of the military is the people that you're serving alongside have such a big impact on why you do what you do and like, and how you can keep going when it seems like I should just walk away and like, and fight the legal thing. But yeah, those, the people that are there beside you and like what, how you would have felt for the rest of your life if you hadn't gone back and something had happened to someone and that's really hard you did survive the deployment though but but what was it like to be home on R&R feeling as though there was no way you were going to come back alive like did you spend more time with your parents or what did you do I did a goodbye tour if you will I figured out before I got home that I was going to find a way to say goodbye to everyone that I loved and cared about. So I like, I packed the whole two weeks full of things. I threw a huge barbecue at my parents' house and I was saying goodbye to all these friends and family and them not knowing I was saying goodbye to them. Right. So that also made the reintegration harder because I had already like accepted death and then to live again is something that took me 10 years to learn after that. So yeah, I did everything. I saw my friends. I went to New York City for the last time. I went, uh, you know, I had the barbecue at my family's house. I did the goodbye tour. I thought it was interesting you said that you didn't 
that people didn't know you were saying goodbye because when I was deployed, I was really trying to protect people back home from like experiencing what I was experiencing. And it feels like you were kind of doing the same thing. You were like, I'm going to say goodbye to them. I'm not going to tell them that I'm going to die because that'll be traumatic and I don't want them to worry about me. But that sounds like a normal, feel less, I feel less crazy now. (laughs) that That was so important that I protected my family and my friends. And uh, yeah, anybody would ask me anything, even while I was deployed, write me letters, write me emails or whatever, because we didn't have like any access to the stuff they have now. Right. And we'll just be like, yep, everything's okay. Oh, that's something just fell off the shelf. Or I'd be like, if I got cut off because it goes black when someone dies, you know, I'd be like, oh, you know, three days ago, you know, it was just the, you know, the wiring's really funky here in Iraq. <laughs> the connection's bad. <laughs> and my mom knew I was lying because it was mostly my mom I was telling those things to. But um, yeah, it is that protection. You want to keep them, like, I was already experiencing so much, like, they didn't need to, they didn't need to feel that and not be able to do anything about it, even though they were already feeling that way. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. So when you got home, what happened after that with, were you able to do anything or did you pursue like legal action against the military or did you just move on? What happened next? So my duty station was Germany. Right. I got a lawyer uh, assigned to me who was like a civilian that lived in Germany. It was, it was very odd. The whole thing was weird. So he advised me to apply for the GI Bill and get out. And at that point, I was so angry and so raging with my PTSD. I was like, yes, that's what I'll do. I'll just get out and I'll fight it on the outside. So I flew home and got out, stayed in the reserves because I got like really weird right before I left. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. So maybe I'll just stay in the reserves, even though they gave me a clean out. Like, no IRR, no reserves, no posting. My dad was really mad at me when I did that. But I got home, and that night, this man called my parents' house and was like, hey, can I speak to Jennifer? And I was like, this is her. And they're like, or maybe they said private faculty or whatever, specialist, whatever I was at the time. I was a specialist. And uh, he was like, oh, well, what are you doing? And I was like, I got out. I'm home. I, I left Germany. And he's like, oh, you should have just stayed in, and we would have paid your loans off. He's like, this is going to be like so much paperwork. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry <laughs> to inconvenience you. Because he was like, oh, if you had stayed in, we would. I'm like, well, where were you three months ago? After I've been like trying to figure this stuff out by myself with some, some random dude in Germany that had no connection to the States. For some reason, they didn't talk to each other. So then my parents kind of took point on the whole thing and went to our... House of Representative guy, Mario Scavello, and then he got other senators involved. And I think it took years. By that time, I was suffering with my PTSD so bad, I was not part of the process. They kind of kept me out of it. But it took eventually a congressional hearing to get my loans paid off for time served. So, so I got out a little bit early, so they held that against me. I only paid about three quarters of the loans off. But by that time, I had uh, filed for my VA disability claim and had been had been awarded, I think it was 70% at the time. And so I used my disability money to pay the rest of the loans off. And now a word from our sponsor. Do you want to lose weight but feel like you don't have enough time to be healthy? Are you stressed about passing weigh-ins or your fitness test? 
Hi, my name is Ashley McGee, and I'm a health coach for women in the military community. As a Navy woman myself, I know the unique challenges we face when trying to lose weight and get healthy. I offer one-on-one coaching to help you make small habit changes that will help you achieve big results. If you'd like to learn more, send me an email at admin at ashleymcgee.com, and I will reach out to see if we're a fit. Let's get back to the show. It sounds like the year in Iraq stayed with you long after you got home, even when you left the military. And then the military held the fact that you got out early because of what they had done against you and eventually paid off some of your loans, but not all of it, which is really frustrating and annoying and a lot of and disappointing, I guess is a better word. So. I think we should talk about your PTSD if you're willing to talk about how did you realize that you were in a place where you like couldn't deal with it and that your parents were having to work on the government? I didn't know what was going on. It was really early in 2006. So the, the information wasn't out there yet. And especially coming home as a woman combat veteran was something that uh, most of the VAs had never seen, nor the community, uh, especially where I lived in Pennsylvania. My mother called everybody and anybody, and they were like, we don't know what to do with her, or we can't help you. Um, <laughs> so I, I didn't even have the language yet. I just knew I felt different, and I could not function. I was having anxiety attacks. I was flashing back to convoys when I was driving at home. I was really dangerous on the road because I would just, like, reset back into that convoy mode, and that was I was, like, running people off the road, and doing really, really uh, inappropriate things. So one of the women that I had been deployed with, she had joined a veteran organization and was like, hey, why don't you talk to these people? They're in Philly, you're in the Poconos. So that's like a two hour drive. And I was like, no, I won't go. I'm not talking to anybody. There's nothing wrong with me. You know, the, the typical veteran response, there's nothing wrong with me. Everything's fine, even though I'm drinking to sleep and I can't function in the normal world and I'm running people off the road and doing crazy things. So eventually my best friend flew in from Indiana, who I also had been deployed with. Her name was Brooke Melton. And we went down to the VA. I met a service officer the night before we went to the VA because he wanted to like prep me for the whole VA situation. At the time, the Philadelphia VA, and a little bit now even, like one of the front doors has uh, like where all the transporting happens. They, they set all the guys up there and they're older gentlemen. So they're like, you know, they're doing the, the, the sexual harassment stuff. And when you're raging with PTSD, the last thing you need is someone to be like, hey, pretty. Or why don't you smile? Somebody says, I want to come in one more time, man. Like, like it was a challenge just to get me past that. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> to get in the door, yeah. Just get in the door to get your services. (laughs) So that service officer helped me. He was a Vietnam veteran. And uh, I ended up filing with him and and, and through that organization. They were really helpful to me at the time. So uh, that's how the process got started. And then I continued to go to the Philly VA and uh, also saw a private psychologist that my parents paid for that was recommended by the service officer because he was an expert and he had been through it with the Vietnam vets and he was, we were the next wave for him. That's awesome that you found someone who could help you and that he was able to like direct you and get the help. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about your story is that P 
people think that because 2016 they finally let women into the infantry that women are like now you know running convoys and doing all these things but the reality is that they've been doing it since the war began and yeah and like you said there's not there weren't very many women because it was limited but they're I tell people, I was like, the army didn't change their mind because they had this bright idea. It's that <laughs> women had already proved that they could do it and that they were doing it. And so the army, you know, caught up with what was already happening. People have it all backwards. They think the army is like so innovative. It's like, no, we already proved it. And now they're yeah. finally letting us in. So and to piggyback off of that, I when that whole controversy was going on and everyone was like, we don't want our women in combat. And I was like, I was there in 2004 and there's been women fighting wars for hundreds of thousands of years and didn't get the credit. So at least if we make it legal that they can actually serve, then they can get the recognition they deserve because not a single woman in my unit got any kind of combat action ribbon or anything like that because we weren't supposed to be there. We were a secret. (laughs) Even hides like the stories even more because you don't have the medals and the badges that you should have that the guys that you were with got because they were males and you were a female. Luckily, by the time I deployed, they were giving women combat action badges, even though I guess we weren't supposed to be there. I don't know, but I was there. It really depended on the unit, I think. Okay. That you were, I, think, I think that had a lot to do with it. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. Because, yeah, the requirement to get a combat action badge in the Army is to get shot at. That's it. <laughs> and you definitely... <laughs> Do, do I get a couple then? <laughs> I don't think you get more than one. I think it's like a one. <laughs> but really, <laughs> even though I waited all this time, people tell me all the time I should have like apply for it or something. And I was like, I just, I've moved on. Yeah, yeah. I don't need that. I don't need that from them. No. So you went through. So you were finally able to get help, and you found someone who could kind of be an advocate for you to get you into the system and get you the help that you needed, and. I would say like a year from when that process started, what would you say your life had changed like, or was it longer to see changes? Yeah, I, uh, it took me a while to figure it out, even though I had all that help. By 2007, I had my service connection, but I was still drinking heavily. And within that year or so, I started to find a veteran community, as well as the veteran organization that gave me the service officer was there as well. But we were all kind of doing the same thing, which was drinking and fighting and uh, not really finding healthy ways or outlets for our, um, for what we were going through. Whether we had PTSD or not, there was still emotions and, and, and a charge of energy there. So finally, I went to a uh, a writing workshop, like an artist retreat for veterans, which, uh, again, my mother stepped in and was like, you're going. And I was like, I'm not going. I can't drive. I didn't have my service dog yet. She was like, I'll drive you. Damn it. You're <laughs> like, no, I really don't want to go. I'm not going. Like, I don't know how to say this to you any other way. And then the day of the, the retreat, she showed up at my house and she was like, we're going pack your bags. Cause so I was like, I didn't pack. So just leave. She was like, no, I'll, I'll pack for you. Um, or you, or you will, somebody's going to pack. You're going on this trip. <laughs> yeah. She's like, she's like, I just have this feeling, Jenny. Like, I just think you need to go. 
And she was right. This was the beginning of my whole story of my home homecoming. Somebody finally asked me in the writing workshop, like how I felt about the war or how I felt at all. I can't even remember what the writing prompt was, but I just remember I had sure had a lot to say that I didn't know I had to say. Um, and I did my first per- poetry form performance that week. I, I did the writing workshop and then I went right into performance and then something moved inside of me. But again, it still took time. So I didn't get out of the drugs and the drinking and the self-medicating until about 2011. So it was a long journey from when, get, when I got out to, uh, I just couldn't seem to get out of my way for a long time. And I was just like building skills and building skills and building skills. And then finally it, it clicked and I looked around and I was like, nope, this is not my life. I always think that's like total bullshit when you hear people say that. And they're like, I woke up one day and I just had to change my life. And I was like, that doesn't happen. (laughs) It does happen. (laughs) I was doing some serious stuff though. I was, uh, I was shooting heroin and, uh, and I was treating it like anxiety medication. I would shoot up and then I go to school and then I would shoot up and I would drive without my service dog. I left him home because I wasn't going to drive with him. Um, So people thought I was getting better. I got thinner because obviously that's one of the side effects Mm -hmm. of the heroin. People were like, oh, you're so pretty and you're so active now. You're doing so well. And I was just, I was seriously, seriously addicted to heroin. And then it just took over. And then I stopped going to school. I stopped going to work. I stopped driving and just sat in my house. So yeah, then then it happened. One day I woke up and I looked around and I saw my weepy arms and my uh, my really, really bad living situation. And I was like, no, mm, this is not for me. This is not my life. This is not who I'm supposed to be. And uh, within that next week, I, I moved to uh, actually here, Ithaca, Ithaca, New York, which I'm visiting right now. <laughs> uh, I still speak at Ithaca College every year uh, since 2011. Wow. Um, I think that's really important that you talk about how much time it takes yeah. and how, like, I think especially in the today's world, everyone's like instant change. Like this, I tried this for five minutes and it's not working, so it must not work. But it's it's not it's not especially like dealing with stuff that happens within your mind and like rewiring because you're overseas and going through such trauma and then being betrayed and all those things that you had to go through. It makes sense that it took a lot of time and a lot of different programs and different opportunities that pushed you to get to where you are, you know, where you are today because eventually, you know, you move forward and now you're doing all these amazing things. Let's dive into what you're doing now. Currently, I am the founder and director of a nonprofit called Women Veterans Empowered and Thriving. It's a reintegration program utilizing writing and performance to empower our experiences as well as thrive in daily lives. So, I, so all the skills that I gathered during that really bad time are now my arsenal <laughs> or toolbox is a nicer way. That is a nicer it. way. So I have this huge toolbox of stuff and I tell the veterans all the time, if one thing doesn't work, you just got to keep trying or keep trying that one thing and see if maybe it sticks. I'm the founder and the director of that program. I facilitate the workshops. I focus specifically on women because they're a completely underserved population. When I started the facilitation of workshops, they were co-ed and I continue to do co-ed ones, but the focus of the nonprofit is specifically women veterans. 
when I moved into the Lehigh Valley, there was no support group for women veterans, even at the VA. They're like, oh, we tried that and they just got, they got hostile or, or they weren't utilizing it right. And I was like, that sounds like a facilitator problem. Like the shrink in the room should have been helping them communicate. <laughs> and I'm also a playwright. I got my first play produced this October, 2019. It was uh, it was a Greek adaptation of the Bacchae that I called Dionysus in America, which essentially took the Greek, the story of, of the Bacchae, but then I transformed it into modern times, modern language, and, uh, and made the, uh, the setting uh, America and Iraq, or the Cradle of Civilization, as, as it is also called. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was a cool experience. I didn't even know I was adapting it until someone told me. That's <laughs> I was they're like you're writing an adaptation. I was like, oh yeah, okay, I am doing that. Oh yeah, because oh. it was for uh, I was working with uh, I started working in New York City. It was really when the thing started to take off for me. Uh, I moved from Ithaca to back to Pennsylvania and started getting opportunities in New York City where. Uh, we started this project called Impact Theater, which I'm now a board member of, where half of the cast is civilian actors and half of the cast is veterans. And we create a story of the veteran struggle. And it is absolutely the worst case scenario. But then after the 20 minute play skit that we put together, we drop the fourth wall, which is the wall between the actors and the audience. And the audience gets an opportunity to ask the, uh, the actors in character questions and they get to create solutions. And they get to work out this stuff without making it personal, even though everything's personal right. to everyone in the audience because they recognize themselves or a doctor or a veteran. And then we have this conversation with the, with the actors and character. And the interesting thing about the process itself is the civilian actors play the veteran parts <laughs> and the veterans play civilian parts. So that was my first go at acting like a civilian <laughs> when I was in the project which is surprisingly helpful to see it from the other side and be like, I wouldn't say that. But then my, my director would be like, well, it's not you. It's a civilian act. <laughs> so I'm involved in a lot of cool projects like that. Uh, the arts is, uh, is a vehicle to get the stuff out of your body, whether it's trauma or whether it's just residual pain of experiences. The body remembers and to get the movement in the body as well as your mind is key. And I think a lot of therapies miss that. They miss that the, the talk therapy is great. Cognitive behavioral therapy is, is fantastic. But I think if you don't find a way to move your body or get this stuff out of you physically, whether it's screaming on the stage, which I've done with my own stories or, uh, or crying or whatever you need to do, it's, it's actually like literally purging it out of yourself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Especially... <laughs> A few podcasts back, I was like bawling listening to the lady's story, and I was like, "What is wrong with me?" But like you said, like there was something inside of me that just was awakened through hearing her experience, and like I couldn't stop crying. But it's really, it's really moving, and I think, I think what you're doing is amazing, and it's so helpful for both the civilian and veteran community. I really liked what you said that they switched the roles because I think a lot of times we get in, especially like. The military, we get in like this military bubble. Yeah. Sometimes people are, they keep saying like only 1% of people serve. And I'm like, but I know all these people who serve. How is that even possible? But in reality, that is, there's only 1%, <laughs> but it's because I'm in the military or I was in the military that I know all these people. And so it's 
feels really unbalanced. And so to change like the frame of thinking, which I should be able to do because before I was in, I had no military connection at all because my family's not military. And so I grew up not even really knowing a military existed. So it shouldn't be that hard for me to put that thinking, but I don't really ever think about that when I'm thinking about like, there's only 1%. I'm like, but they're everywhere. And then it's also something that I learned pretty recently within the last couple of years is using that military language and surrounding yourself with veterans can be super helpful with the camaraderie and everything, but it also keeps you stuck because you're continuing to do the same things and expecting a different result. We can't learn to be civilians. We can't learn to be successful veterans in the civilian culture if we don't immerse ourselves. So in the performances that we have in my nonprofit, we invite the community in and we have, we tell them our stories. It's a, it's my recreation of rituals that, you know, I'm like, and a lot of um, people are discovering this, like Romans, Greeks, Native Americans, they had these rituals of homecoming, storytelling. It wasn't a parade and waving flags. It was embracing these service members and being like, this is what I went through. This is what you went through. Oh, you know, you don't have somewhere to live. Come live with me because it was tribal. And we don't have that. So in my own, you know, small way, if you will, hopefully it'll be bigger someday, inviting the community in and hearing the veteran stories and then the, the civilians telling us what they did when we were gone, it's reconnection. And we really need that in our society. And I think, I think isolation kills veterans. It's not the addiction. It's not the suicide. It's not the homelessness. It always begins with the isolation. And I think that's the key factor that people don't realize. I have one more question, but is there anything yeah. from your experience that you think we missed or I need to ask about? Okay, I think we hit everything. Let's see. War, drugs and alcohol, reintegration, my work. So the last thing that I ask people is what would you tell young women who are considering joining the military? And it can be good or bad. It's your answer. Don't feel pressure. I'm thinking I, I had it. I have the usual answer. I'm just I had a moment when I I can just speak to the, the truth of what I what I already do uh, when I'm approached by a woman that or a girl that wants to join the military. And, and I just give her all the truth that I can, because when I joined and when many of us joined, we get the recruiter golden ticket. They promise you everything, even if you're like me and was thorough and got it in your contract, they breached the contract anyway you know, rape in the military or the civilian culture happens all the time to women. But um, there is that, that uh, do you want to roll the dice? Do you want to see if it's going to happen to you? Or do you want to try to find another, another way, another, another path? And then also I discuss with them very clearly, when you join the military, you give up all of your work rights and you are property. You are government issued. And if you're okay with that, if you're really okay with that, then I would say move forward and maybe roll the dice. But if you're not okay with like, you know, being penalized for a sunburn because you've damaged government property, maybe the military is not for you and to explore all your options and potential. My stepchildren are uh, 16 and 13. And after they heard the stories from the veterans that they know that I work with, neither one of them are going into the military. So it's just truth in recruiting that I hope for more than anything. Be truthful. If, if 
I'm going to be exposed to something like I need to know. And that's not always the case, but I'm willing to talk truth in recruiting for sure. Yeah, I think that's very true. And that's the reality that I think recruiters definitely don't make you realize that you are the government's property. They tell you where they need you to go and like you have a dream sheet, but that's what it is. It's a dream. It's not like a reality sheet and you have to give up a lot. And if you continue to serve and you either get married or you have kids, then you're asking not only yourself to give those, make those sacrifices, but your family is going to have to make sacrifices too, because that's just how the military works. And you have to decide if that's what you want to do. Yeah. My dad got out of the military as soon as he found out that my mother was pregnant. So he didn't think having a family in the military was a good idea. And he didn't encourage me to join the military um, until, you know, I got in that situation with the loans and I had no direction because uh, I wanted to join the Marine Corps when I was 17. And he said, no, <laughs> I understand now why I didn't understand that. Right. Yeah. I get it now. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being so open and sharing all of your experiences. It's really important that we talk about all the things that you went through, especially having to deal with drugs and alcohol after coming home from a deployment, because that's a reality that people face. And I'm glad that you were able to get help and have that moment where you were able to change your life and to do what you're doing today. Thank you, Amanda. This was really wonderful. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.